Please be seated. There was an 18-year-old boy named Michael. Michael was a senior in high school preparing to graduate. He had been a rebel, disregarding his father's guidance and just breaking all the rules. Michael had been on the edge of trouble throughout high school. Now he was about to graduate. More than anything in all the world, Michael wanted a new car. It had been his dream to get a new car for graduation. Many of his friends had already received a car. He believed a new car would be his ticket to freedom. On graduation day, his family held a big celebration, and as the party concluded, all the guests had gone. Just Michael and his father were left alone in the room. Michael's father was a fine Christian man and was deeply concerned about the direction his son was heading. He brought brought out a wrapped package for Michael and lovingly handed it to him and said, this is your graduation gift. Congratulations. Michael opened the package and then the box. Inside was a Bible. He was so angry and disappointed, so disgusted, that he crammed the Bible back in the box and threw it on the floor and stomped out of the room. He then gathered a few things, left the house, and never came back. Michael saw his father only occasionally over the next 20 years, and one day he received word that his father had passed away. He returned home for the memorial service. After the service, he went over to his parents' home and began to go through some of his father's effects, and there there he saw it. The Bible, his graduation gift, still in the box. Michael sat down and opened the box. This time when he removed the Bible, he opened the front cover. Inside the cover were these words, congratulations on your graduation. I love you, son. And underneath the words were a set of car keys his graduation gift, rejected 20 years earlier. Sometimes we view God as Michael viewed his father, someone who's trying to push religion down our throat. A father up there somewhere saying, find out what they're doing for fun and make them stop. As someone who's trying to rob us of freedom or fun. When in reality, our Heavenly Father loves us a great deal and he actually wants to bless us. He wants to give us his best. He wants to give us his blessings. And some of us, like Michael, have have left the presence of God, walked out on God in anger, seeking freedom or wanting, wanting independence. And in so doing, we leave our most precious gifts behind. And not a Bible, not a new car, but the relationship with God our Father. This is the path of independence, the path of rebellion. And there are a lot of people around us today that are on this path saying, God, God, leave me alone. I want to run my own life. I know better. I'm going to make my own choices. God offers us a gift, and we reject it. This is an all-too-common circumstance and an all-too-common 
human trait. The choice is my way or God's way. So what if we made the wrong choice? What if we chose wrong? God is a God of love, and in his love, he's also a God of second chances. He's a God of second chances. There was a group of people in the first century that learned the same lesson Michael did, the hard way. God had offered them a gift. They said no. They took their matters into their own hands, they went their own way, and they lost big time. But fortunately, they got a second chance. And I want us to read about it today as we look at second chances. If you'd turn with me to Acts 3, Acts the third chapter, starting with verse 11. Acts 3, starting with verse 11. It's on page 884 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this by faith in the name of Jesus. This man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this man complete healing to him, as you all can see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that this, his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he has promised long ago through his holy prophets. We join the story where we left off last week. Peter and John healing a man who had been lame from birth by faith in Jesus. Now we look at the people's response to this and Peter's second sermon. Peter's second sermon. Like Michael in our introduction, these people, these Israelites, had made a huge, huge mistake. And Peter tells them in no uncertain terms, he said, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. You disowned the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. This is what you did, but I am offering you a path of restoration and blessing. I'm offering you a second chance, a way out, a way back. I want us to look this morning at four steps, four steps to the second chance. Step one is recognition of responsibility. Recognition of responsibility. I am responsible. This is a, a sense of group responsibility and individual responsibility. What were they responsible for? What were they responsible for? First of all, they rejected Jesus, letter A. Twice, Peter says, they disowned him. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not, it says. 
The Jews were looking for a Messiah, a Savior, a Deliverer. He did not fit their preconceived notions about what that looked like. Jesus came to them, and they rejected him. Secondly, they replaced Jesus. They asked that a murderer be released to you. Now, what does that mean? Well, when we study the account of the events leading to Jesus' death, we find that Pilate, the Roman government official, was trying to release Jesus because he found him innocent of any crime. But every year, Pilate held the the People's Choice Awards. Every year. He had a custom of releasing a prisoner of the People's Choice every year. Once a time, one time a year. And Barabbas, a notorious murderer, was the people's choice to be set free instead of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus was executed instead of Barabbas. They replaced him. The third area of responsibility was they killed Jesus. Peter says, you killed the author of life. You killed God. Now, they had done a terrible deed. And surprisingly, Peter says it was part of God's plan. But we'll talk more about that later. Peter calls on them to recognize their responsibility. He says, I want you to own up to this. Today, we too need to recognize our responsibility, our culpability, and our guilt. Say, how is that? When it comes to rejecting Jesus, have we ever rejected Jesus? Maybe we accept Jesus intellectually, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, but is he really our Messiah, our Lord, and leader? Do we accept his messiahship and lordship and title, but reject his leadership in our lives? Michael, in our introduction, never disowned his father, or he never claimed he was not his father. He would acknowledge that relationship. He just rejected his father's leadership in his life, that ongoing relationship. We say, Jesus is Lord, but let me run my own life, thank you. We may follow the leadership of Jesus as long as it's convenient, as long as it suits my purposes, as long as it's politically correct, as long as it's acceptable, as long as it's easy, but we really reject Jesus in priorities, in our thoughts, in our time, or goals. Is God to be found anywhere in all of that? Maybe it's marriage. Is Jesus the Lord of your marriage? Or does selfishness rule the day? Now, just let me say, if we don't wrestle with selfishness in our marriage, we're probably not human, okay? I discovered I was selfish when I got married, and when there were two pork chops sitting there, I always grabbed the bigger one, okay? It's like, I thought, this is awful. This, I'm selfish. I discovered in a close relationship and proximity of marriage, I'm selfish. Terrible realization. Husbands, let me say, are you living with your wife in an understanding way? Well, Pastor Mark, nobody understands women. I I know that. But are you living with her in an understanding way? Are you loving her as Christ loves the church? Is Is your relationship selfless? Is Jesus the Lord of your marriage? Wives, do you submit to your husbands in the Lord? Treat him with respect or meaning speaking well of him to all people. Do you lift him up, elevate, speak the best of him? Let me just say, husbands, if we love our wife as Jesus loved the church, she will have no trouble with submission or respect because she knows we're looking out for their best, her best. Always sacrificing her, treating her like the precious gift she is. 
Do we reject Jesus in any, any parts of our life? What about our thought life? What do we think about? Is Jesus the Lord of our thought life? Do you wrestle with lust or pornography? How about the use of the tongue and gossip? One of the hardest things that we, we do. We love to talk, and it's just a, it's an issue that comes up time and again. Is Jesus the Lord of your tongue? How about finances? Do we tithe? The first 10% of our income is not ours. It belongs to God. In fact, in fact, when we look at stewardship, we discover that actually everything we have belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. We're stewards of it. We're responsible to take care of it and use it for his purposes. He just says the first 10% comes to me. That's the tithe. And then steward, use the rest of our resources for his glory. Malachi 3 says if we withhold the tithe, we're robbing God. I haven't talked about tithing yet. I'll get to that one of these days. I warn you ahead of time so everybody can stay home if they want to. But we'll get to tithing. Do we embrace Jesus in every way, yet reject his lordship over our money? Is Jesus truly Lord, or have we chosen to reject him and in rebellion run our own lives? Is there any area in your life where you have rejected Jesus? And if you're not wrestling with his lordship in at least one area of your life, you're probably not honest. We all need to say, I'm wrestling with the lordship of Jesus. I reject him in certain areas of my life. Or have we replaced Jesus? Replaced Jesus. Is there anything in our life that's more important than Jesus Christ? If, if, if that's the case, then it's a mistress. The Bible calls it spiritual adultery. Loving someone or something in the place of God. It's idolatry. Are there any things that replace the importance of Jesus in our life? The third recognition of responsibility was that the Jews killed Jesus. Certainly, I don't have to take responsibility for that, do I? I wasn't there. I have a present alibi. Okay, well, Jesus died for my sins. He died for your sins. It's as if I drove the nails into his hands. It is as if we hung up the cross. It's as if we stabbed the spear into his side. The only difference between the Jews then and us now is that, that we don't act in ignorance. Peter said to them, I know you acted in ignorance. We know. Now, in spite of all that, okay, in spite of that, taking responsibility for all that, God wants to bless you. God wants what is best for you. And just like the father gave Michael a Bible and keys to a brand new car, God wants to bless you. And I imagine that all these years, the father left those keys in the Bible, hoping and praying that Michael would return someday and accept his gift. So the first step in second chance is the recognition of responsibility. Hey, I messed up. The second step to second chances is repentance for our sins. Repentance for our sins. Peter calls the Jews and Peter calls us to repentance. Now what does that mean exactly? First of all, it means, letter A, a change of mind, intellect. Repentance begins in the mind, our intellect. We recognize the problem and make a conscious decision in our mind to change direction. There's an awareness. It happens, first of all, in the mind. Our mind processes information. We think about it. We process it. We come to the conclusion that we need to repent. Second, it's a change of heart or attitudes, affections. 
There's a turning of our affections, our desires, and loves. It's attitudinal. This part of repentance the Bible describes as sorrow. It talks about true sorrow in repentance. This may be the emotional part of repentance. Now, when, when you make your or made your children stop fighting and tell them, I'm sorry, how could you tell if they meant it? I mean, you could say, I'm sorry. You know, how could you tell if they meant it? I could always tell. How? Because there was true sorrow. There was true sorrow. So when they said, I'm sorry, there was true sorrow. And I could see it in the emotional state. Some emotion that indicated a change of heart. And thirdly, there's a change of will. Or these has to do with choices or decisions. Moving from my way to God's way. And there must be a change in behavior. There, there have to, has to be a difference in choices. Repentance has to be more than just mind and intellect, heart and emotion. It must also be will or action. There has to be a different direction, a 180-degree change, a turnaround, like a U-turn. When you take a U-turn, whether it's legal or illegal, you go, you're going this way and you turn around and you're going this way. Without the will, there's no real turning and no real repentance. We can be sorry all we want, but if we don't turn and change direction, it's not true repentance. True sorrow leads to a change of the will and change of directions. And repent and turn to God. To God. Repent so that, he says, repent so that your sins may be wiped out. What does that mean, wiped out? What does it mean, wiped out? How many of you have ever lost data on your computer? Okay. How many of you have purposely deleted emails legally? Okay. We're, we're not going to go there. Okay. We're not going to get that. But, but data that's, that's erased, it doesn't exist. Maybe your computer crashed and you lost documents. Maybe you trade your computer or tablet or phone in for a new one and you want to erase all the files for safety. Okay. When it says your sins are wiped out, it means that God erases the data. The Bible says God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. means wiped out. Your sins are wiped out. In other words, they are irretrievably removed. God forgets them. Now, when someone does something against us, we may forgive, but it's really hard to forget. Somewhere in the back of the memory, we kind of remember. Well, you know what? God's forgiveness is perfect. He does forget. So if we go back to him and say, God, I I know I messed up last year and I asked for forgiveness, his memory is wiped. Okay? He's already forgiven that. It's not there. A second chance. When we truly repent, we are in reality no longer guilty. We have a new start, a new path, a path of good, a path of blessing. A true second chance. God's erasure is perfect. Now, we seem to like to recover some of our own personal past, our past sin files, and read them over again and feel guilty. Don't do that. Let God take those. He said, your sins are wiped out. They're gone. See, no one but God can really forgive sins and wipe them out. And Peter tells these people, and he tells us, You've got a second chance. You blew it big time, but God wants to make it right. God wants to bless you, do good for you, recognize your responsibility, repent for your sins, and I'll wipe away those sins. The third step towards a second chance, these are the results, are 
Refreshment. Refreshment. Verse 19 says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. One of the hardest things we have to understand is that God is for us. He's not against us. God is for us. He wants to bless us. God sent Jesus first to bless you. How? By turning us from each of our wicked ways, each of us individuals. The first step in blessing, part of the second chance proposition, is to turn us from our wicked ways. Why? How does that work? Doesn't God spoil our fun? No. Let me illustrate with marriage. When we get married, we take vows for faithfulness, love, and commitment for life. Then one in the marriage decides to have an affair, sin and adultery. Does anyone here know of a case where an affair produced love, harmony, joy, peace, or blessing? Anything good came out of it? Any, any blessing that came out of a, a sin like that? Of course not. Sin does not bring blessing. Sin brings pain, suffering, hatred, and despair. When we turn from sin, live righteously, the result is blessing. See, everybody thinks that God is out to spoil everybody's fun by drawing boundaries. We call them God's top ten or the Ten Commandments. And somehow if we keep those, we'll, we'll earn his, his, his uh, favor. But God's top ten or his, his relational guidelines are there to bring blessing. And if we step outside of those boundaries, ignore those signposts, blessing is replaced with pain and suffering. How many of you have been to Yellowstone Park? Yellowstone National Park? Wow, the vast majority of you. Okay. Besides the beautiful mountain scenery, the lakes, and plenty of bears roaming around, the main attraction really is the geyser, Old Faithful. The geyser that goes off with predictable irregularity and sprays super hot water into the air. As a kid, I remember visiting Old Faithful, and all around the site there were signs, danger, stay away, do not get close, and not just from Old Faithful, but all these hot springs that were around there. They told us to stay away from the hot springs. Why? To spoil the 10-year-old's fun? No, to protect the 10-year-old's life to spare me from pain. The Bible, the Word of God, has signposts, boundaries, and when we follow them, we experience blessing, not pain. Signposts help turn us from destructive behavior. It's not something we earn, but it's something that we live in the context of. God sent Jesus to bless us. How? First, from turning each of us away from our wicked ways, and the results are refreshing, times of refreshing. What comes to your mind when I say refreshment? Probably a lot of different things. I remember probably the most dramatic refreshment that I had was I came off uh, an all-day hike in Glacier, when I was at Glacier National Park, and came down over the other side of the mountain. I'd been hiking about 20 miles. It was a 90-degree day, and right off of at the top of the mountain were these glacial lakes, and on the other side of this little lake was, a, was ice. It was a glacier. And my friend and I, in stupidity, dove in. You know, if I did that now, I'd probably have a heart attack. But we did that. I was in my 20s. Dove in, and talk about refreshing. I mean, exhilaration, because you go from 90 degrees to like 36 or whatever that was. 
in an instant. Exhilarate, there's a, this incredible, and when I think about refreshing, I may think of that. It, maybe it's like going on vacation. You wake up in the morning and you have a beautiful view of the lake and the mountains. You sit on the deck in the morning enjoying the scenery and the view and sip orange juice or drink coffee, whatever it is. Just refreshment. Think about the most refreshing thing you can think about. God wants you to be refreshed. Refreshed. God wants to bless you. He wants to refresh you. Refreshment does not come from anywhere else. It only comes from God through Jesus. Our physical refreshment pales in, in comparison to the refreshment that God wants to give us. Why are we so reluctant to receive that? Why so reluctant? In John 4, 13 to 14, Jesus talks about water of refreshment. He said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Refreshment, so fulfilling, so filled with God, with Jesus, with this refreshment that it just pours out like a spring to people around us. It's not just for us. It flows out around us. Refreshment. So there's recognition, repentance, and refreshment. And the fourth step to our second chance is restoration. Restoration. In verse 21, Peter speaks of Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Has life robbed you of something good? A precious relationship, health, stable emotions, freedom? God does not want to rob us of something. God wants to restore something far greater than we can imagine. He wants to restore what we were originally intended to be, to become the created beings that we were created to be. I want to list just four things that God wants to restore. There are many other things, but these are four things. He wants to restore, first of all, authority and power to the church. He wants the church of Jesus Christ to be what it was intended to be, power-filled and dynamic, the power to affect change, the power to change and transform lives. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to change a person's life. Transformation, it's in our, it's in our statement. Love God, love people, be transformed. Nobody else can transform a life. Jesus transforms, and he wants to give the authority and power back to the church. Secondly, he wants unity and spiritual power in the home. Spiritual power and unity in the home. The family is the basic unit of our, our society. You fracture the family and you fracture society, and you can see it in areas of our country where the families are fractured, particularly inner cities of our, of our nation. When families fracture, the whole structure of that culture breaks down in crime and drugs and, and, and single parenthood and all the things that happen, out of wedlock births, irresponsibility, and the, the family is totally broken and, and broken apart. Satan wants to destroy your family. Okay? He wants to destroy your family. Count on it. He wants to destroy your family. And men, I want you to realize this truth, especially Satan is out to do anything he can to destroy your family. And men, you are the protector. You 
are the protector. I didn't make it that way. God placed the man as the head of the house to protect and to nurture and to take care. As Jesus loves the church, men love your families, love your wife, love your children. God wants to bless your family, to unite as a family. Let Christ rule in your hearts and home, and the Holy Spirit will give you the power for that. Third, God wants to restore intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. When we recognize and repent, we have nothing between us and God. Then we can develop our unhindered relationship with God. Just open, unhindered. And finally, God wants to restore our mission to bless all the peoples on earth. There's a mission. Verse 25 says, And you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. God wanted the Jews to repent, to be restored, so he could bless them in order to bless others. We are the recipients of that blessing. Those far off, not taking that for granted. Next Sunday, I have a, I have a video that I want to play that shows, the, you may have seen it, the spread of Christianity over the years. This is the beginning of that. Our path of blessing, our second chance, does not end at our church. The path of blessing, the second chance, does not end at our homes. The path of blessing, the second chance, is to be extended outward to everyone, everywhere. We are blessed in order to bless. I have this in your notes, a little phrase that says, to us, in us, through us, to them. I want you to remember this. This is, this is the mission. To us. The blessing is given to us. In us. Then it goes through us to them. Don't forget it is through us to them. You are the church in dispersion during the week. You are the church. We're gathered, then we're scattered. And our mission is to bless. Michael, in our story today, had great regrets. He waited over 20 years to return to his father. 20 years to discover how much his father loved him, how badly he wanted to bless him. God, your father loves you and desperately wants to bless you. Don't wait to recognize, repent, and return so he can bring refreshing and restoration to your life. It's available today. Second chances. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a message 2,000 years old that talks about second chances and your love and your desire to bless us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, today that you would speak to those who have not taken advantage of that second chance and, and given their lives to you, that they could repent, admit their, their sins, and accept your forgiveness and, and say, I want to follow Jesus today. And Father, those of us who've had that blessing, some for many, many years, that we'd realize that it's in us through us, to them. 
God, we can't do that on our own. We're kind of timid. We're a little bit afraid. We're not sure how that all works. That's why we need your power. We need your strength. We thank you that, that you can do that through us. And that it's your power, your strength, and your amazing grace that makes that possible. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?